So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Tuesday, we head to the battlefields of medieval Spain to witness the very first ambulance. On Wednesday, it's the anniversary of the day Coca-Cola's creator hit on his winning formula. He dropped the wine, but kept the cocaine. On Thursday, the thief who stuffed the crown jewels down his trousers. And on Friday, when free-spirited Danish parenting put 90s New York in a tears. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, Man fans. Ollie Man here with The Modern Man, the monthly magazine show for your ears. Here's what's coming up. You'd have all the Facebook sellers come in the mornings and you'd literally see between six and eight big bin liners coming out of the vans. Taking down organised crime gangs, taking on the police and how to do a citizen's arrest. I meet the king of private prosecutions. Plus... She chose you, my friend. You are the winner. There are reasons for that. Alex Fox talks small penises and retroactive jealousy. And Ollie Peart goes electric. That's all to come on this edition of The Modern Man. But first, your letters and hello to manfan Pill, who says, Ollie, I want to thank you for another How To Be A Dad episode. I've enjoyed listening to them over the years. Two days after the episode came out last month, I welcomed my first child. Uh, congratulations, Pill. Uh, he says, I'd already re-listened to number one in preparation, <laughs> and now I can't wait to revisit all of the How To Be A Dad episodes as my son grows up. We love that idea, a kind of guide through the different stages of parenthood seen through the eyes of myself and Tom and Stu. Uh, We are one day planning to put all of the Dad's episodes out actually on a separate podcast feed for precisely that purpose, learn as you go. Um, But in the meantime, there is a Dad's page on our website. Good luck pill with the journey not listening to our show but being a dad uh, pill continues ollie i would also like to bump up my monthly beer money contribution to the new amount of four pounds 57 we all have to keep up with inflation uh, thank you pill um yes as i said last month the average price of a pint of beer is now four pound 57 apparently not three pounds 69 or whatever it was when we started in 2015 um, and remarkably since i i made that on-air correction a bunch of you have actually written in to ask to be charged more money <laughs> on your regular recurring accounts. If only everyone was such good citizens as our listeners are. Um, Lee Myring has adopted that new price point as well. Tom Frier updated his plan to £5 per month. So did Sarah Franklin. Thank you all. Uh, Bav uh, increased the frequency of his donations to every three months instead of annually. We also welcome new monthly beer money donors, James from Ely and Rich Samuel. And we've had generous one-off contributions too from James Court, who I think is the one I went to school with. Hi, James. Um, And our yearly top-up from our glamping ambassador, Andrew Johnson. Thank you all. As you can see, how much and how often you send us cash, that's up to you. It's all highly customizable and totally secure. But the principle behind it is rock solid. Basically, if you enjoy listening to this show, do know, yes, it's free to listen to, but it isn't free to make. Ad revenues are down. We put our heart and soul into this. So send us some money if you can. Modernman, M-A-N-N.co.uk and click beer money. Uh, Man fan James Billington has been in touch as well about the dad's episode. Uh, He specifically wanted to respond to Tom's point about how young kids will often only emerge from the soft play when someone else's dad asks them to do so. Uh, James says, Ollie, I've seen research on this. As kids grow up, they stop listening to parents and storm off. This is often seen in the case of kids ignoring advice from a parent, but paying attention to the exact same advice 
from someone else. The belief is that this drives kids, mostly boys, away from, quote, the village to seek information and comfort from other groups. This would mean that they find partners on their travels and prevents incestuous relationships from forming. There we are. Evolution in action when a child is disobedient at soft play. Who knew? Uh, Thank you, James. Uh, One final bit of business just before we get on with the episode. If you like me, if you like listening to me, and I'm going to assume that uh, since you've downloaded a show that's named after me and formed around my personality, then at least you find me tolerable, you might like to know that I'm going to be on Radio 4 for the next six Saturdays presenting Saturday Live with Nikki Beddy. I'm really excited about that. It is... It's the highest profile radio gig I've ever done. So, I mean, I'm excited. It's a great show as well. You should probably listen to Saturday Live anyway. So, yeah, set a reminder in your digital device or whatever you kids do. Uh, 9 a.m. Saturday mornings, Radio 4 for the next six weeks. Uh, And for international listeners or people who aren't up at that time, uh, there is a Saturday Live podcast as well. Uh, Just search for BBC Saturday Live. And then uh, when my six-week stint is up, unfollow that podcast, and let's send a clear message to management that I was the most popular guest host. Uh, Right, coming up on this show this month, you will learn what ABC stands for in the Metropolitan Police, you'll learn what Alex Fox once did on a train station platform, and you'll learn why you might want to buy a Volvo. Let's go. Time for the Zeitgeist, supported by Dirty, your trends tested, with Ollie Pitt. Hello. Are you still brushing your lips? A little bit, yeah. What's that mean? What's I mean, after, after two months of a man brushing his lips on a daily basis, what do you settle down to as a reasonable regime? Uh, once a week. Once a week. Um, I'll tell you what I have started doing, yeah. and that's only because um, uh, of, of my partner, Pitt. She has, um, I call it a foot sander. It, it, it basically yeah. sands your foot. She yeah. lost the charging cable. So rather than just buy another charging cable, because it was quite a unique one, she just bought another foot sander and then she found the charging cable. So she gave me one of the foot sanders. Okay. So I sanded my feet yesterday. I think women are onto something, you know. Like mm. they look after their bodies and it just feels nice. I couldn't give a shit what my feet look like. I really couldn't care less. But they feel really nice. Uh, let's see how you're getting on with electric cars, Ollie, because that's what you were... Uh... Uh, tasked to do for this month's trend, uh, Man Fan Peter in Stanmore challenged you to advise him on what's genuinely better for the environment, a second-hand car, a new electric vehicle. He wanted to know what to do. You, Les, is coming in for Londoners who are listening to this, so you're going to have to pay more to drive old diesel cars in. into town. Yeah, It is in. Yeah. The thing with you, Les, is that actually there's quite a small percentage of cars that will need to pay it. You know, your car's probably going to be older than... 2015, 2014, something it like that. It always makes me laugh when you try and do the public service information bit because you just sound like Grant Shapps. <laughs> you might as well just be saying, well, the thing about student loans, Ollie, is uh, most people, in fact, don't yeah. have to pay them back. Well, um, but no, my point is, is that, like, for the vast majority of people, uh, you're not going to have to pay you, Les. All right, I have got- to pay you. Okay, so my mum lives in Stanmore, where Pete Man Van Peter is from, and I will have to, because I've got a diesel, an old diesel from 2010 or something. I go. am now going to have to pay £12 every time I go and visit her. Yeah, okay. Well, anyway, the, the point is, if you get a slightly newer uh, petrol car, you won't have to... Um, pay you less correct when you start looking though into sort of the the complexities of what what is more environmentally sound 
you know, a, a used petrol car or an electric car, one of the first things you will come across is a report from Volvo from 2021. Um, and the reason is all of the media outlets picked this up because their report said that one of their electric vehicles produced 70% more greenhouse gases than the petrol equivalent. And their study was done on a single model uh, called the XC40, and they've got a petrol version and they've got an electric version. We've actually got two electric versions. Those cars are actually built on exactly the same production line. So the same workers make the petrol car and they make the electric car. And even so... They were saying 70% more greenhouse gases than the petrol equivalent. Why would they say that about their own product? They say that basically what they're doing is trying to be open and transparent about the process because they ultimately want to get to a point where they have zero emissions of their cars. Now, what it actually means is that, um, or what they're saying is that uh, uh, for it to break even to the petrol equivalent, you'd have to do 100,000 kilometres. So after 100,000 kilometres, you would have broken even at that point. But... That's the line that kept getting pulled out by certain media outlets. And the reality isn't as simple as that. This report is like 50 pages long. Mm. Like it's massive. And actually, when you start digging into some of the detail, you're talking about a very specific model at that time. You're talking about even two years ago, technology that's being that's slightly different mm. and assumptions on where and how your car is, one, driven, but also how it's how it's charged up in the first place. And actually... In Europe, an electric car, this is according to the International Council on Clean Transportation, your electric car will produce 69% less CO2 per kilometre than a petrol car. Okay, but that's not the only issue, is it? We all know that there's less emissions, but the production process of creating a new electric vehicle, and we all know with other electric gadgets in our lives, you know, our smartphones die after four years, the battery becomes useless, they get chucked in the ground... Is it genuinely more environmentally friendly to get a new car that might not last that long when you could extend the life of a more emissions-unfriendly petrol vehicle? The short answer is yes. In the long run, it is more environmentally friendly for you to get an electric vehicle. And you can check this. You can check this out. So one of the best places to go and find out is another long-winded organisation, the European Federation for Transport and Environment. Um, <laughs> they, they've actually created a tool where you can check you can say um what the type of model sort of a medium small or uh, large extra large model and you can choose uh where where you're going to drive that car so in what country and also where the battery has been made and then you can compare that to a diesel a hybrid and a petrol car and it will tell you how many grams of co2 per kilometer uh, the difference is and and the reason you have to put in where you're driving the car is because one of the things you have to factor in when you're talking about climate emissions for electric vehicles is how they're charged up in the first instance so if your car is driven in poland for example your electric car it is way less environmentally friendly than it would be if it was driven in the uk that's because the uh, energy mix in poland is far more um fossil Fossil fuel focused even with this tool though If you were to have, and this is the worst case scenario, an electric car that had a battery produced in China and was driven in Poland, it would still emit uh, 37% less CO2 than petrol. And the best case is uh, a Swedish car. There you go, it's Volvo again. Uh, Swedish battery, rather, driven in Sweden, 83% less than petrol. Mm. And you can actually see as well, because there is a high production climate cost of, uh, of electric cars, but you can see at what mileage that sort of 
changes over and all of a sudden it's the, the electric car that's beneficial. And it's around 18,000 kilometres on average. But you sort of don't know what petrol car you're comparing that to either, do you? You can look ahead with the tool as well. So you can look ahead to 2030 when they anticipate there'll be different types of fuel available. So like mm. biofuels and that kind of stuff. And they've, they've got one in there they call e-fuel as well. But these are fuels which essentially have a much lower climate impact than the current fuel that we use now. Um, so you can compare based on 2030 numbers as well just to see whether or not that's going to make a, a difference. And how many electric cars now are actually marketing themselves on their green credentials? Because it seems like, in a way, the first wave of people who are really super keen on doing the right thing for the environment, maybe they've already had this conversation. And now the people that are left are the people who are thinking about range anxiety, where am I going to plug it in? Can I get a scrappage scheme? You know, maybe they're not really thinking about the environment. If you look at any kind of car, car advertising, electric car advertising in particular, it's, it's more of a lifestyle thing. And there is very much focus on things like range. It's like, oh, our car can now do 400 miles. You know, it's more, more on par with a petrol car, that kind of stuff. And it's also the tech that seems to be parallel to electric vehicles. You know, it's weird, isn't it? It's not just... You know, we're changing the engine, but the inside would be like, wow, we've got this massive flash, beautiful touchscreen yes. and all this kind of stuff. That's kind of running parallel to that as well. It's a bit like vegetarian food on planes, I often think. <laughs> God, explain this. Well, I just, don't know what you mean. I just find it really irritating when I choose the meat option, mm. I get the delicious pudding. When you choose the vegetarian option, you get a slice of apple. What's that? <laughs> Why would the vegetarian not want the chocolate mousse? What is that? Yeah. Just because you don't want meat, that doesn't mean you don't want delicious pudding. I feel it's the same, like, why would a petrol car owner not want a touchscreen? Yeah, you're right. And actually, the vast majority of electric vehicles that are advertised now as well are SUVs. Like, So rather than like sort of smaller oh. little drive-around things, they're sort of selling this sort of environmental ideal, but also with sort of luxury. Mm. You know, so it is, yeah, you're vegetarian with the chocolate pudding. It's kind of like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, you can have your cake and eat it. <laughs> Everyone's and you, following this extended metaphor. But the thing with that is if you are truly environmentally conscious, you know, you do have to think about, yes, okay, it might be less impactful in the environment than a petrol car, especially sort of within sort of uh, local climate and that kind of thing with particulates and all that kind of stuff. But if you're going for full fucking leather seats and like mm. uh, all of the gear inside and you're making the car super heavy, then you're just sort of filling it up with more stuff that's going to impact the climate. Now, I know you've been um, raiding the Modern Man Contacts book as well for this challenge. I have. I've spoken to a uh, former Top Gear host and car nerd, uh, Roy Reed, who yes. you spoke to. former guest on the show. <laughs> yeah, and he knows a thing or two about he knows electric about cars, cars yes. and yep. cars in general. He does. And because there's so much information on this flying about i wanted to reach out to him to just try and get a little bit of clarity on it well some independence and, as well because you often just frankly don't know who's paying for that information right no exactly essentially what rory said is most cars are going to be driven in excess of two hundred thousand miles in their lives anyway around that number and any electric vehicle will be cleaner from a co2 perspective than any petrol new or used and that's over its entire life the entire life of, of, of the product so he's saying if you want to be green go ev did you talk about what happens to batteries, though, and the, the unenvironmentally friendly consequences of going electric? We didn't go into detail about that, but I have looked into it. And the technology around um, battery recycling is improving. It's getting better. So while there is, you know, still mining that's required for uh, materials like nickel and uh, cobalt, they're not going to 
need to mine quite so much because they'll be able to recycle it. There is a uh, caveat to that, and that is that there are predictions that by 2050, our demand for it will be 100 to 200 times what it is now. And it is a thing that is mined from the Earth. (laughs) Yes, exactly. But that would equate to something like 10 and 15% of all global reserves. So it's not like we're chewing into this this vast, vast reserve. And it's also based on daily, daily uh, developments in um, battery technology. So the batteries at the moment are massive. I mean, they're huge. The whole floor of a car. They believe that by 2050, they'll be much, much smaller. So you'll need less material to create a single battery. I mean, I suppose the point is it's not fossil fuels. So that's not contributing to climate change. But it's just... You know, the phrase that Peter uses, environmentally friendly, like, you know, essentially no car, no car for an individual's use is environmentally friendly, is it? It's all it's all a massively industrialised process that involves the global supply chain and lots of damaging processes. And then you rumble along on the Earth's surface for your own personal needs and don't take many passengers. That's never going to be friendly to the environment, is it? It's just, a, I guess, just a scale. Well, exactly. I mean, everything you do has an impact on the environment. Everything. It's just how much of an impact do you want it to make? You know, and you do and you do have a choice. Well, some people do. I mean, the thing is with electric vehicles at the moment is that they are very, very expensive. Yeah, so is there a cheap way to get an electric car? Because even on lease, they all seem to be more expensive than non-electric cars. That's a real issue for people. So you can get 0% finance deals at the moment, but you have to put down a substantial deposit. But even so, those cars are still quite expensive. So using... Peter's uh, quandary as an example, like which would be better, a brand new electric vehicle or, or a used car. I've looked into the details of the Vauxhall Astra hatchback because you can get secondhand versions of that model from 2022 and you can get a brand new electric vehicle version of that on 0% finance with mm. a 30% deposit. Now, the electric vehicle one is going to cost you £42,000, just over almost £43,000. The second-hand version of that in petrol will cost you £25,000. It's quite a big difference. Um, That's with 14,000 miles on the clock. Now, I've gone through and broken down all the potential cost implications of this over a three-year period. So that includes the potential resale value of the car. So based on um, average depreciation costs for electric vehicles and petrol cars, Mm. I've included the cost of running it. So cost per mile. So the miles per gallon in that car and the average cost of fuel at the moment as well. And also how much it costs per kilowatt hour for your electric car. I've also included any kind of government incentives. There aren't that many around, but you can get 75% off an electric uh, car charger in your home, which is worth up to 350 quid uh, if you buy an electric car, and then tot it up all of those costs and maintenance. So maintenance-wise, on average over the course of a year, a (laughs) petrol car, I know it's a lot, isn't it? A petrol car will be almost twice as much of that as an electric car. Will it? Yeah, about £449 a year versus £227 a year on average. So even though the electric car is, what, £42,000 versus £24,000, when you come out of the end of it, after three years and you sell your car, you'll be better off by around £2,200 if you went for the electric car. And I came across this amazing tool that is available for free and created by a developer called Kate Morley. She has basically got live data from the national grid to give minute by minute 
accurate information on exactly where your um, fuel is coming from in the in the country. Right. So it will detail not only the demand on the network, so you can see how much demand's on the national grid, but you can also see that energy mix. So, you know, what percentage of that is from renewable, what percentage mm. of that is from gas and oil and that kind of thing. And it's really fascinating. And what we want to see, obviously, is more of that becoming renewable and cheaper. And, and even that is happening, isn't it, anyway, it, in yeah, this it country? Yeah, it is. Even in the last few days, I've been talking about, you know, changing the rules on onshore wind farms, you know, mm. and that will hopefully mean that we're going to have far cheaper electricity than we have at the moment. If you were going to buy an electric car, Ollie Pitt, which one would you buy? I'll go for a Volvo, mate. Absolutely. Volvo, Volvo, mate. That can't yeah. be the name of the car. No, it's not a Volvo. No. Well, they've got a few. <laughs> it's their Guy Ritchie range. <laughs> they, they got it. They got <laughs> <laughs> they got they got a new one coming out called an XC30, which it's it looks good because it's much much smaller than the other ones. But the reason I would do that is because of the data that I mentioned earlier, which is that if you can get a car where the battery is produced in Sweden, mm. it's more environmentally friendly. If it was than than getting one from China, producing. okay. Should we find out what your challenge is for next month? Let's do it. It's from <laughs> Ashley in Southampton, who says. Ultra-processed foods. I know that they're hard to avoid, and I've just found out that bread is often ultra-processed. Bread! So, Ollie, I'd like you to go one month without ultra-processed foods. <laughs> I thought you were going to say... Oh, no, you are saying one month without bread. Well, no, because freshly baked bread... No, well, you are. You've, bread, just, well, you've just said that. I, I, I'm quoting Ashley. I'm, don't shoot the messenger. I think he means, like, King's Mill and shit like that, doesn't he? He doesn't mean your local baker, or a home-baked bread. Well, doesn't he? I mean, what does ultra-process mean? Like, if it's gone through any kind of process multiple times, which could well happen in a bakery, then maybe it is ultra-process. Well, this is it, isn't it? I think in the old days, people thought of processed food as being, like, pepperami and dairyly, you know? Mm. Yeah. Whereas now there's a recognition that sort of, I guess, any long-life manufactured product, it's not a fruit or a vegetable or a fish or a meat, it's got stuff added to it. Can you live without ultra-processed food? Yeah, because on, on the surface it would seem quite easy because there's a category of food that I call mystery meat. Like, you know, like fish sticks where it's yes. just like, yeah. So to be able to avoid all that stuff, that's easy. I can do yeah. that. I do that anyway. Yeah. But if it's like bread, bread. Well, like even I imagine like spice mixes that you put on your food, you know, does no. that count as ultra-processed? Like what, what does it mean? Because it's a bit yeah. of a buzzword, isn't it? Ultra-processed. Where do you draw the line? Mm. And uh, I guess what would be your food and drink recommendations if you go through the next four weeks without having any? Water and oats. <laughs> <laughs> My favourite folk band from the 70s. Uh, uh, when it comes to something you definitely should be drinking, though, uh, we should thank our sponsors for the Zeitgeist. Dirty, the mushroom brand that is changing the coffee game. Yeah, it is, because with normal coffee, I get the jitters, I get crashes from time to time. Yes. But you don't get that with Dirty. You don't. You do not get it. Dirty's Coffee Super Blend, which is what Ollie and I have been trying for the last, well, it's been two months now. Yeah. It's an instant coffee, and I'm not an instant, I'm a snob about instant coffee, partly because it does give me the jitters. Do you know what I mean? The granulated stuff that you buy from the supermarket. I don't mind the taste, but I just feel on edge straight away after drinking it. And I end up doing the laborious process with the filtered stuff and grinding it and all that. Mushroom coffee definitely tastes different. But what it does is it gives you this focus, this energy like you get from proper coffee, but without the jitters of instant coffee. Yeah, and the, the focus is quite hard to explain, but it kind mm. of, 
it 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 really does, especially for an afternoon. It's like a really great kind of I kind of describe it as a mellow pick me up. So what's in it is organic arabica beans with functional mushrooms like lion's mane and chaga, mushrooms historically known in traditional medicine for um, energy and immune supporting properties. So you get that double thing. It tastes smooth and you are participating in a genuine trend, functional mushrooms. Yeah. The ultimate zeitgeist drink. <laughs> exactly. So if you are a coffee lover, then it might be time to give it a go. Go to dirtyworld.com today and use the code MAN for 10% off on us. That's D-I-R-T-E-A-W-O-R-L-D dot com and use the code M-A-N-N. Music time now. And uh, Ollie, do you remember Griff? I do remember Griff. Whiffy Griffy. Uh, <laughs> that is her social media handle, I think, yes. It is. Uh, <laughs> we met her on the Mon Man Christmas special a couple of years ago, came in and played live for us, and she was phenomenal. Well, uh, it is our record of the month time, and it's time to meet Griff again. She's a big deal now, but she's still found time to return to her roots here on the Mon Man. <laughs> this is Griff's latest single. It's called Vertigo. It's out now. think is responsible for apprehending criminals? The police, right? And in Britain, who do you think gets to decide whether or not a suspect goes to court? Well, that'd be the Crown Prosecution Service? Not entirely. In the UK, private companies are technically able to do both these things, and no one's done it more than former police detective David McKelvey. He runs a business called TMI, not as in too much information, but as in trademark I, E-Y-E. The business began as a way of investigating counterfeit goods. But he's now responsible for a massive number of private prosecutions, mostly shoplifters, over 1,200 crimes, and he's never lost a case. I went to meet David at his offices on the outskirts of London, and before we got on to the bizarre business of private prosecutions, we started with him telling me about an event he witnessed as a teenager – long before he was a detective, which prompted him to become a copper in the first place. I was in a club, 18-year-old, in a club, and I saw a man getting uh, beaten quite badly, um, you know, on a night out, and just stood there and watched it and wanted to do something about it, but couldn't do something about it. You know, you, if you just stepped in, you are going to get bashed up as well. And it, 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 was, it was standing there watching a group of men uh, beat a man almost unconscious and... And this, you know, this feeling of you want to step in, you want to do something, but, you, you know, you're not, you can't because you will end up getting beaten up yourself. And I came away from that. And I think the very next day I thought about it. I thought, well, what can I do that would make a difference? And 
I made the application, put the application in. So I joined on the 15th of February 1982. And I remember driving up in my MG and you were shown to a room, given a room and a room key. And that was your, that was where you lived for the next 18 weeks. And you got up in the morning, you you put on a uniform and then you marched. And you marched everywhere um, back then. Um, it was a very regimented I suppose it's very similar to being in the army, you know, where you've got to be up at 6am in the morning, make sure everything's done, breakfast, out on the parade ground, parade, mm. and then off you go marching off to your, um, your classes. I got posted to Stoke Newington in, uh, in Hackney, which was back then was known as the front line you know it was it was it <laughs> it's was funny a, now isn't it you think of it as quite a gentrified place now yeah it was it was rough yeah. very very rough i mean they literally we had areas you know sanding and road back then was the front line you weren't allowed to go there and so you had to learn very quickly to adapt and learn how to talk to people so you'd be you know you'd be on your own on a night duty and you'd be stopping a car with four men in and you know you've got to know how to deal with that how to manage it you know deal with the aggression that sort of stuff what would be your tip for someone in that position now i i, I learned very quickly to carry a bag of sweets with me you know if someone's slightly aggressive i'd get me a bag of sweets out and say have a sweet calm down it's a silly thing but it just for someone who's going starting to go on, a, on the, the they're heading up uh, you know a level of aggression yeah to suddenly get this policeman standing there and say calm down have a sweet you know there are, you know, there are times when you are never going to be able to do that. You know, you can get a feeling that someone's going to go and the level of aggression is going to go higher and there is no way you're going to control that. And at that point, you know, you've got to call for help and you've got to do the best you possibly can to, to resolve that issue there and then. You know, particularly if you're arresting someone, arresting someone is a, a, a use of force. It makes me laugh in this day and age. You know, people talk about arresting people as if it's something easier. Why don't you use unarmed combat or whatever else? Arresting someone when they they don't want to be arrested, mm. you're in a fight, and that's it. You are you are literally fighting for your life. I did everything at Stoke Newton. I was a burglary squad, robbery squad, drug squad, in plain clothes. Always in plain clothes. At Stoke Newton at the time, there were there were lots of plain clothes squads that would deal with quite major drugs seizures. You know, kilos of heroin. You had a big in Turkish organised crime syndicate up towards Green Lanes. Uh, you had uh, Africans coming in to the top end of the ground, bringing in kilos of heroin at the time. You then down, down, you know, towards Dalston, you had um, the Yardies were, at the time were a, were a big issue. So there was increasing gun crime. It's a different psychology, isn't it? Wearing a uniform or being plain clothes. Yeah. It's interesting, actually. Criminals do very quickly spot policemen in plain clothes. It was explained to me... Um, by a, a DS, a flying squad DS, and we were in a pub on the evening, and he said, have you all noticed what you do that no one else in this pub does? <laughs> no, what are you talking about? He says, well, you're, you are a policeman, you're, also, you're standing out as, as policemen, even though you're in plain clothes. He says, whenever anybody walks through that door, he said, look at the rest of the pub. He says, they don't look up, they take no interest. He says, but whenever someone walks through that door, you lot all look, and you immediately analyse them, he said, nobody else does that. That's why you will always get picked out as policemen, because you will always try and make eye contact with that individual when they walk in, and you will analyse them immediately. When you're in company of other policemen, even when you're retired, you can see they still do it. You know, it's, it's just a trait you pick up from being in the police. Was there 
like a mantra? Was there a slogan? Was there a, a principle that you learned in detective school that you then always kept at the core of what you did? Yeah, ABC. Accept nothing, believe no one, check everything. If you follow that, you are not going to go wrong. And that's where people do go wrong. You know, when you look at some of the stuff that's gone on over the past few years, all the sexual allegations, the sexual offences, you know, with Parliament and uh, the chap who made all the allegations, they didn't, they didn't do their job properly. They, you know, they accept nothing, believe no one, check everything. If you, if you follow that mantra, you are not going to go wrong. So scepticism and rigour, basically. Absolutely, yeah. You would use every tactic, every ability you had, you know, every means of communication you had to to persuade someone to give evidence, or you know, as a, as a witness, or when you're dealing with the actual suspects, you know, you, you know, I, I recall um, a chap who'd, who'd raped his his um, granddaughter, six-year-old granddaughter, and I just want, you know, you want to kill him, you want to rip him to pieces. I had to stand there for hours and hours and hours making him cups of tea uh, and chatting to him about his dog and his goldfish and this and that and that because the evidence we needed to find, only he knew where he'd hidden it and he wouldn't tell us. And so, yeah, literally for hours, we, you know, you were talking and then suddenly, you know, at two hours in the morning, he says, all right, Dave, make me a nice cup of tea and I'll tell you where it is. You make him the quickest cup of tea in the world and suddenly he tells you where these these pictures are and you get the pictures and you've got him. But you've had to go through that process of dealing with someone who is absolutely reprehensible in order to get to the point of being able to get the evidence to charge him. Had he been denying it up to that point? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And then yeah. after hours of chatting, he'll yeah, shift? Yeah, just changed completely, literally, bang, I'll tell you, all right, I'll tell you where they are. What do you think is the key there, then? It's it's about befriending someone. You know, it's about, I say befriending, you're not actually befriending them, but, no, you're, but you're, you're getting... Putting them at ease. You're, you're getting someone to trust you. Yeah. And you're using your skills and communication skills to um, to break down any barriers. One of the biggest things you'd always do is trying to turn the person you're dealing with into an informant. Because mm. that's your next job. If you can turn a villain and get him on board as your informant, then you're going to get your next drug dealer or the next person up the, uh, in the, in, up the chain or the people who are out burgling or committing robberies. Mm-hmm. So uh, as a young detective, that was, your, you know, that was the source of information, your intelligence, informants. And to, be, you know, to roll people over as informants, you had to communicate with them. You, know, you had to have a really good relationship. And some of, the, you know, some of my best informants, I, I liked them. They were, they were decent. They, I got on very well with them. They were real villains, proper villains. But you get into a relationship with them as long as you know that there is a line that you cannot cross. David worked his way up to Detective Chief Inspector, receiving multiple commendations for leadership and bravery, and was involved in the response to the famous Essex Boys murders in 1995. He left the Met in 2010, around which time a chance encounter took his detective skills in a new direction as an entrepreneur. When someone came to me, obviously I was coming towards the end of my career, and they said um, they investigated counterfeit goods offences, not in the UK, in Holland. And they said, but they wanted to set a similar business up in the UK. Could I have a look at it? So I set up TMI in 2007, and basically we started looking at counterfeit offences and the whole world of piracy, copyright. How big was the scale of the problem? 
Oh, it's a huge, huge, huge problem. Massive, massive problem. Are we talking Louis Vuitton handbags and stuff? Uh, no, God. I mean, you know, aircraft parts, car parts, wow. car brakes, brakes on cars, airbags, things. Ooh. You know, if, if you look at the stuff that we, we do, you know, tobacco. The, the last factory that we raided uh, up in Sheffield, asbestos all over the ceilings everywhere all the asbestos dust was on the floor and they're sweeping up the asbestos dust with the tobacco to put in pouches that people are then smoking oh god rat droppings you know if you look at our our um our farmer team they go out to india to do raids in india and a lot of work out there you know fake malaria drugs kills over seven hundred thousand people in sub-saharan africa every single year yet there is nobody within law enforcement anywhere globally who's looking at that problem. When did you realise that it impacted people's health in that way, though? Because, you know, I gave the example of Louis Vuitton handbags because I was all ready to say, well, you know, they're big well, corporations. Does it matter if people are spreading their t- brand around? Take Louis Vuitton handbags. So where do Louis Vuitton handbags come from? I've seen pictures of kids, eight, nine-year-old kids, who are tied to chairs in the Far East, who sleep under the table who spend their days, 12, 16 hours a day, sewing Louis Vuitton handbags. Mm. You know, this is this is not, you know, people go out and buy these things and think, oh, it's only a, it's only a fake, it doesn't mm. matter. Well, they think the crime is copyright infringement, so, so exactly. what? Yeah. yeah, but where does it come from? One of the first brands that we ever done the work for, which was Pandora Jewellery, you'd find 30 stalls selling counterfeit Pandora Jewellery in the market. Now, you may think... Who really gives the monkeys until you realise that the, the counterfeit stuff is made from carcinogenic metals, nickel, you know, lead. It's dangerous. So I started employing people from within the police who I'd worked with um, on the Flying Squad, Regional Crime Squad. We use all those skills that we've got from inside the police, surveillance, undercover work, etc. And we take the cases, the evidence to police or training standards, they would do raids, they would prosecute. And then around 2010-11, you had the austerity cuts hit, government mm. austerity cuts. Police had never really been interested in cannabis goods ever. But trading standards offices, you know, if they had 10 people one day, next day the austerity cuts hit and they had two. And they weren't interested in doing that work anymore. So what we were finding is we were... We were identifying lorry loads of cannabis goods and people were either not taking any action or they get a caution. So from the criminal's perspective, it was almost decriminalised. So we looked at how do we now bring these people to justice? There must be a route to get them in front of a court and get justice. It's interesting as well because I think as a punter in one of those markets, again, there's part of you that thinks, well, it's just copyright uh, theft. You know, I'm, I'm still paying for a good that's been made. And then there's another part of you that sees the guy selling it and it seems quite humble. So you kind of think, well, I'll give him 20 quid. What difference? You're not thinking about the massive operation underneath. How big are those tentacles? Huge, huge. I mean, if you, you know, the market is now closed, but bobbing in the market was one of the most prolific markets for counterfeit goods. You'd have five to 600 stalls selling, openly selling counterfeit goods. And I always made the point when I'd go to meetings, you wouldn't allow 500 drug dealers to stay in the field and sell drugs openly, but you allow 500, 600 people stay in the field selling counterfeit shoes, gloves, you know, everything. You could buy anything and everything there. And they they would earn in a day anything between five and fifteen thousand pounds cash. What? 
big the mo- traders big big money because what would happen in the mornings you'd have all the facebook sellers come in, in the mornings and you'd literally see between six and eight big bin liners coming out of the vans and they would be supplied to the facebook traders you know mrs mcfee who's a housewife who actually has got a facebook site that sells cannabis goods mm. she's making her money but the traders in the markets would sell wholesale to them first of all and then you'd get a hundred thousand people turn up you know throughout the day and they'd be buying goods constantly and they'd make you know at christmas they'd make even more money what was the big seller trainers is always the big one you know mm. people buy counterfeit trainers all over the place counterfeit makeup as well people were buying counterfeit cosmetics from these stalls mm. I don't know whether they actually believe they were genuine. They must have done because you wouldn't be putting stuff on your face or mascara in your eyes, you know, with brushes that have got small microbes in it. You know, they're not sterile at all. We've even had, um, we've even prosecuted one person for um, eye lenses. So people oh. are putting counterfeits, <laughs> um, not, not sterile, they're not sterile, yeah. lenses in their eyes. One of the biggest things we've seen more recently is the increase in shoplifting retail theft where they're stealing stuff to sell in boot sales Mm -hmm. so uh, just I mean literally this week uh, we've caught and we're prosecuting a number of people and I'm sitting there thinking why are they all stealing washing uh, you know uh, washing uh, fluid and then one of the ladies one of our undercover officers said well when we go to the markets now you see these people with these stalls out and that's all they're selling in the market now so what's happening is stealing from from the town centre and other areas, and they're taking it to the local boot sale, and that's where they're, they're selling all the stuff at the weekends. So there's a, a complete business in it. You know, you've got mm. the, um, the people out stealing on a daily basis, then they're handing it over to the handlers, or then selling it at the markets. I mean, uh, another big seller, or something that's stolen is steaks. I mean, the amount of steaks... Meat. Meat that gets stolen. And we've followed some of these shoplifters, and they go straight to a restaurant. And so you've got the, you know, quite high-class restaurants buying steak that's been stolen from Waitrose. Wow. You know, but the shoplifter, the thief, will go in and just literally clear out the entire shelf into a bag, into the local steakhouse or local restaurant, and then they sell their goods. Still to come, taking down the crime rings, taking on the police, and how David became Britain's king of private prosecutions. That's when the modern man returns, after this. This is a paid advertisement from BetterHelp. Man fans, as we head into autumn, that summer holiday that you took back in June can suddenly feel very distant. All of those promises that you made yourself, you know, to be more calm and relaxed in your day-to-day life, just like you are on holiday, chatty and spontaneous, just like you were around the swimming pool. Well, then you get back home and real life intervenes. Perhaps like me, you sometimes find it hard to stop thinking about work when you're supposed to be doing other stuff. Or money worries linger in your mind and that affects your sleep or your relationship or both. Well, one great way to make those racing thoughts go away is to talk them through. Therapy gives you a place to do that so you can get out of your negative thought cycles and find some mental and emotional peace. And with over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com man. That's better, H-E-L-P, dot com, 
slash M-A-N-N. Back to my conversation with David McKelvey now. Over nearly a decade, his company, TMI, had built up a reputation, privately pursuing the gangs that distribute counterfeit goods. But then, David saw an opportunity to expand and create another company. About 2016, I looked at what was going wrong with policing. It was quite clear that there are no policemen on the streets anymore. So I then set up my local Bobby, uh, and my local Bobby is the front end, is the uniform, if you like, is the chaps on the streets. Dixon to Doc Green was the, you know, the icon. Is you have a dedicated, <laughs> dedicated Bobby in a I mean, dedicated that, area, a beat. That okay. is, I mean, that's a very friendly image, but you are talking about a private police force that you own as a sister company to this yeah. company, right? Yeah. So what was what's the idea? Well, the idea, idea is simply that, is to give people back, the communities back, that Bobby, get them back that, that, that recognised individual who is a dedicated Bobby for their area. And so that person becomes part of their community and is there in the public realm, in that particular area, in that beat, to protect, to make sure that they're safe and secure. But they're paid for by private clients. Yeah, well, there's two different routes to it. One is the residential beats, which are paid for by the residents of an area. So that, that's really just like a gated community security guy, right? Uh, our areas aren't gated, and they're not necessarily high high net worth areas either. Um, but you get, you know, you've got a bobby, and probably within two minutes they can be at someone's house. The first thing they do when they come on duty, because we've got a broken windows policy, is they'll come on, are any street lamps broken? Are there any paving stones? Is there any graffiti? Is there any litter? They'll do that, that whole broken windows thing so that you're making sure that the area looks right and feels right as well as, you know, feels safe. Okay, so that's one route. And then the other route, like you say, is, is private. And the other route is, is the business so that's, so that's shops and stuff. So. Shops, retailers. Yeah. And, and, and so, that again, it's a dedicated Bobby in a particular area. So we, we've got Bobbies in the uh, Royal Borough of Kensington, Chelsea, Kensington High Street, Kings Road, Knightsbridge, Leicester Square, Piccadilly, Fitzrovia, Acton, Ealing, West Norwood, Tulse Hill, Streatham, Clap. We've got, you know, big areas. Their role is very different. Their role is to look after the residents in the area, but also they're paid for by the businesses in the area to keep them safe. And so they're dealing on a daily basis with retail crime. And that's the biggest issue we, when we first started. That's the thing that sort of hit us straight in the face was we were getting called daily to shoplifters. And what we were finding was that we would turn up, we would detain a shoplifter, we would call the police or the police had already been called. The police wouldn't turn up or they'd turn up four hours later or when they turned up, they would immediately let them go. The best you would get would they would issue what was called a community resolution notice, which is a piece of paper which is worth nothing. You might as well throw it away in a bin. So there's a massive loss of intelligence. All the criminals, all the shoplifters knew that there was no outcome. They knew nothing was going to happen to them. So then that evolved into the idea that you wouldn't just turn up like a private security firm or you wouldn't just be there like the guy on the door checking baskets. You would be a private police force. You could arrest people. Anybody has the power to arrest someone. That's, that's always existed. You, me, anybody can arrest someone. The, the only additional power the police have got, a police officer's got, is the power to arrest someone who is about to commit an offence. But where an offence has been committed or is being committed, you, me, anyone can arrest someone. 
that that's always been that's always been now. That's so, a citizen's arrest. Yeah, but the, there is no real differentiation between the two. It's simply you've got the same power as a police officer. It's just the police have got one additional power that you can arrest someone about to commit an offence. But you're still entitled to arrest someone. Uh, Which means what? I mean, what well, actually can you, I mean? What, you're what, you're not entitled to just detain someone, are you? Yeah, absolutely, you are. Yeah, if someone's committing an offence you are entitled to detain them. I suppose if you're a shopkeeper and someone's stolen the chicken out of your fridge, that's yep. quite clear and you can understand why the shopkeeper has the right to keep them in the back of the shop until the police turn yep. up. But if you're talking about, you know, white-collar fraud, people listening to this, if they think if they think someone who works in the office with me is stealing stuff out of the stationery cupboard, I mean, it's a slightly ridiculous example, but you, you can't keep them in their office, can you? What are you well, supposed you, to do? Well, you can detain them and call the police. If the police didn't turn up, then that's then you've got to start thinking about what you and that's one of the issues we have is you know we will still call the police and if the police are not going to arrive in time the managers have to make that decision will he or she is going to have to be let go yeah okay but you're not allowed to charge them obviously that's oh the god no but that's but that's where we differ uh, uh, because because we are doing private criminal prosecutions and have been since you know 2011 we've got an entire process in place that works. You know, we, we've done over 1,200 prosecutions. We haven't lost any cases. We've got access to the police national computer. We follow the correct procedures in everything we do. Everything's done lawfully, legally. What happened with shoplifting was we got to a point where we detained a shoplifter uh, up in Piccadilly uh, in Boots store, I think it was. He'd stolen 300 and something quid's worth of um, uh, perfume. Uh, our bobbies had turned up within minutes, detained him. Police turned up hours later, and uh, all on body one camera, they turned up and they basically told him, don't do it again, and they let him go. We'd done uh, uh, a check on him, and it turned out he had something like 54 convictions, and more importantly, he was actually on a suspended sentence for shoplifting on that time. <laughs> he had a 12-week prison sentence, suspended prison sentence, and he wasn't just... You know, he wasn't just it wasn't a his shop. first time. Yeah, he, he had previous convictions with GBH selling drugs. He wasn't a nice man, mm-hmm. and so we took the decision that we would prosecute him as a private prosecution. The first one we'd we'd ever done outside of counterfeit goods. So Boots wasn't paying for you to do that. No. So who was paying for you to do that? We were. I mean, for for a good period of time, eighteen months, we were we. I say we, TMI were paying. Uh, and losing a considerable amount of money. But the business model is if you take it to the court, then they have to reimburse you for the efforts to prosecute. You, yeah, the, and this is a bit of a fallacy. You can prosecute a case in the criminal courts, and at the end of that case, you are entitled to ask for your reasonable costs. Mm-hmm. The reality is that you keep a record of what you've done, the hours you've done, you send it off to the Ministry of Justice, someone called a determining officer, sits there with a red pen and goes, not paying you, not paying you, not paying you, not paying you, not paying you. You've got hardly any right of reply and you could put in for a thousand pounds and you could end up with 50 quid. There is no money making element to that at all. It's literally, it's about getting your reasonable cost back. And if you're lucky, you probably get, if you're lucky, I would think you get 40, 50% of your cost back. We're doing something as a lost leader, I suppose. That's the easiest way of putting it. It's, It's something we do that nobody else does. But it's, it makes us different. Nobody else does private prosecutions as a company because they all know it doesn't, doesn't pay. And 
choosing who to take forward into a private prosecution. As you've said, the police try and discern, don't they, who they're going to take forward and who they don't. Yeah. Do you sometimes let people go? Yeah, we, 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 we've got very strict criteria. We will not deal with juveniles. Uh, we will not deal with anyone uh, who's got obvious mental health issues. So we, we, we wouldn't prosecute someone who is stealing to, you know, to survive. Um, you know, they've gone and nicked a sandwich or a cup of coffee from somewhere. It's not in the public interest. We would never, ever prosecute. Um, we won't prosecute where they're obviously violent or potentially armed. Um, and the other area we can't prosecute is if we don't know who they are. That's the, the other big issue. If you can't identify a name and address, you're not going to be able to serve a, a criminal summons on them in, in, in those circumstances. Hold on. So obviously we're not in the position of advising anyone who's trying to break the law. Yeah. <laughs> but having just told us that we can all do a citizen's arrest or whatever yep. you call it, is it actually then the case that if you are then arrested by someone, if you just choose not to tell them who you are, there's nothing that they, they can do about it? They can, yeah, but the point is, if, if you as a citizen are going to arrest someone, you're going to call the police. The police will turn up and yeah. they will then right. arrest that person, take to the police station, they will confirm your identity through fingerprints, DNA, whatever route. But and in your case, they could just court, choose in, not to tell you who they are. In our case, if they choose not to tell us who they are, then we are very much reliant on the police to turn up and get their identity. But the, th- the thing is, most shoplifters don't go to prison for the first occasion or even the third, fourth, fifth, tenth occasion. Um, so most shoplifters, when they get caught and they're absolutely banged to riots, they've got the goods on them, CCTV, you know, made the missions on the body-worn camera. Mm. When you turn around and say to them, what's your name and address? And they go, well, I don't want to tell you. Okay, fine, well, we're calling the police. They know that if the police turn up and arrest them, they're going to spend the next 12 to 16 hours in the police station and potentially being caught the next day. It's far easier to actually give their name and address because... They're going to get criminal summons, but they've avoided actually getting banged up for 12 to 16 hours. So from their perspective, when we're dealing with them, they actually understand that actually I've been caught. I'm not going to get much for this in the courts. Therefore, I will give you my name and address. Do they we, get a criminal record, though? If, absolutely. If they, yeah. So yeah. that is, can be a big deal for some Oh, it, it is, yeah. I mean, we, we had a, a job in court yesterday, and um, he is going to go to prison. There's no doubt about it. But then he's on a suspended sentence. We've, he was on suspended, if you can believe it, he's on a suspended sentence for selling uh, Class A drugs. We caught him shoplifting, so he's now in breach of his suspended sentence. So he will go to prison. So is that, do you think fully understood by people when they give you their name and address. They could get a criminal record. Because that is a big thing. But that's a very different scenario. Most people who get caught shoplifting, you tend to deal with the prolific shoplifters who you know anyway. You'll Mm. know them because you deal with them almost daily. They are out literally stealing every single day, so you know who they are. We had a team of Romanian women two weeks ago, Monday, who uh, had dresses that had pockets everywhere. You wouldn't believe the amount of stuff they had stolen down there uh, in the in their dresses and the prams they were out with but we had to call the police to confirm their names and addresses they'd given false na- addresses and names in the first place but the, the police confirmed who they were the decision was taken at the point by the police at the point that they knew that we were there and we were going to prosecute they don't need to take them into the police station the the, the, the issue here is if the police arrested those two ladies for shoplifting First of all, they've got four kids with them, all under the age of 10. What do they do with them? Then they've got the issue uh, of they're going to be tied up for potentially 12 to 16 hours interviewing in and doing all the other stuff, which then takes those two police officers off the streets for that period of time. Whereas we are there, we will do all of that paperwork, we will do the prosecution. There's still the end result. They're still going to end up in court 
but without those two policemen being taken off the streets. Mm-hmm. And the other thing around it was quite interesting is that um, we've, even had, we've even had to do the, the, the statements for the officers, you know, because the officers are very young in service now. The people that I've got working for me have all got 40 years experience, you know, investigating organised crime. They can put a set of case papers together very, very quickly. You know, they've got that knowledge and experience. And what about reading them their rights, what they call in the US Mirandarising people? Well, you do that. That's the, 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 the prolific crimes team, who are, uh, if you like, our front end in plain clothes on the streets dealing with shoplifters, uh, they will, they, they will um, you know, the moment they, they deal with people, they will caution them. They will deal with them in exactly the same way as the police would deal with them. Once you've got sufficient evidence, we have lawyers in the same way as the CPS exists, Crown Prosecution Service. Our lawyers look at the code for Crown prosecutors. Is there sufficient evidence? Is it in the public interest? Providing you can meet those two tests, then we will serve a criminal summons. And the actual process, the court process, is no different to a police CPS-led prosecution, except that when our barristers or solicitors go to court, they've got five case papers, whereas a CPS lawyer is going to court with 80, 100 sets of papers they've not read. So the, the difference is that when we get a case in court, our barristers know the case back to front. We get a plea of guilty usually on the first occasion. We will supply all the evidence in advance so that the, 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 the defendant can sit there, read it and go, actually, I'm bang to rights. And they'll tend to plead guilty on the first occasion. We'll take anything on. So, for instance, we had a, a situation where one of our investigators saw a chap walking down the road and he was shoving a set of number plates down his trousers. Well, that's a bit strange. So he sat and looked, kept observation, and within five minutes a car turned up, see it, Cooper, free up, all with masks on, and uh, picked him up and th- off they drove. I got a call a bit later from a, a chap uh, who said, there's something strange going on last night, I've got on CCTV. He said, this Seat Cooper parked in my car park. He said, and these four blokes got out of here and they started wiping it down and rubbing it and changed the number plates. I thought, that's a bit strange. So we found the car the next day, parked not far from that car park. So we, we put a tracker on it. We put a, a, a covert tracker on it, informed the police that we thought there was something didn't even get a phone call back from the police. And we watched them for initially six days, day after day, breaking into people's houses. We had a surveillance team out with them and they would go out trawling. Um, they turn up in another car, they get into the work car, which was this Seat Cooper, and they changed the plates. And it was quite bizarre, they changed the plates before they went out burgling. They would change the plates after they committed a burglary and then they changed the plates again when they parked the car up and left it each day. And every day we followed them and every day we watched them kicking people's front doors in or going through the back of premises. And every single day we were calling 999 and saying, we're ex-policemen, we've got a, a team of burglars we've been following and they're breaking into someone's house now, this is the location. And you couldn't make it up. The response on every single occasion was, can you ring back in the morning on 101 <laughs> and report it? And it, that went on, literally, for six days. Uh, it got to a stage where, um, after one burglary, they were doing 150 mile an hour up the A1. We knew what speed they were doing because we had a tracker on their car. And I phoned up a friend of mine who, at the time, was the borough commander over at um, Tower Hamlets, knew them. And I said, they're either going to kill someone. I said, they're going in mob-handed, sledgehammers. I said, or they're going to 
you know, run someone over 150 mile an hour, have an accident, kill people. Finally, the, uh, they sent down a surveillance team. The first day they missed, they, didn't, they turned up too late, they'd already committed three burglaries that day. And then the next day the surveillance team turned up um, and they were full of their own self-importance, kicked us out of our own office to brief and they missed the, the car leaving. And we could see it obviously on the tracker going over the uh, Dartford Bridge. And unfortunately they obviously all went tearing over the surveillance team with blue lights on. The, the baddies obviously got wind, abandoned the car and that was the end of it. It got recovered about eight days later with sledgehammers, false plates and everything else. We were, we were reporting burglaries on a daily basis. We put all the case papers together, evidence for, I think, it worked out about five burglaries. The car turned out to have been stolen in the burglary. We gave it all to the police and nothing happened. So I've now taken all of those case papers back and we're going to prosecute it ourselves. So I think it's going to cause a bit of grief, but it will be our first private prosecution for burglary. But that's, but that's an example of why... You know, you're, you, you're talking about private prosecutions. That's where the police aren't doing their job properly. It galls me to say that, but they aren't doing their job properly for whatever reason. And so you've got to have another, you've got to have the ability to, to bring someone to justice. If someone's breaking into someone's house, it must be right that you can prosecute that person. And that's what we're going to do. I mean, some of the critics of private prosecutions point towards the post office scandal Absolutely. as an example of where it went really wrong. It's something we've covered on, on this show before with people who actually pled guilty knowing they weren't guilty. Yep. What do you say to that? Basically, wealthy companies get to pay for stuff and people who are on the receiving end of those charges don't get a fair trial. Well, the, the, the post office went completely wrong from day one because you had the investigators and the prosecutors were all part of the post office. It was in their interest, if you like, to do that. The, the system we've, we introduced from the very beginning gives us that element of independence all the way through. So if one of our investigators puts a case together, it comes into the team leader, he reviews the evidence. If there's sufficient evidence, it then goes up to the next level. And finally, I review it as CEO to then sign it off. Now, I'm not going to send anything off that I don't think is absolutely stone bonkers we're going to get a conviction for. It then goes off to lawyers who are independent, completely independent. They look at it, is there sufficient evidence? Is it in the public interest? And providing those, that, that's met, it then goes to independent barristers who again will review it all. So there are checks and balances all the way through our system, the way we do things. I guess it just feels like such a quintessential thing of what the police should do, this kind of stuff, that people looking at it who haven't had the experience of knowing the details of the cases you're describing would just think just in principle, private prosecutions shouldn't exist. But I wonder if you kind of agree with that as well. I totally agree with it. Yeah. I, 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 don't, I mean, private prosecutions have always existed since Magna Carta. And if you go back prior to the Prosecution of Offences Act 1985, nearly all of the prosecutions that were brought for shoplifting that time were private prosecutions. It's, this is not a new, this is nothing new. Private prosecutions have existed for years. It's only really recently they've come into the public for and the main because of the post office scandal really that's the, that's the biggest thing that's that's caused all of the problems but as a, a means to achieve justice it's absolutely it works listen the bottom line is if if the police were catching and convicting shoplifters or even bothering to turn up to shoplifters there would be no need for us to do it we didn't do it because there was any benefit to us how much shoplifting is linked to drug addiction 30, 40% I would think 
But there's an important point in this. Only a court of law can give a sentence that will mean someone has to then attend a drug rehabilitation centre or mm. an alcohol addiction centre. Mm. You know, it's, it's so important that if someone does commit an offence that they get put before the court. If they're guilty or not guilty, it's for a court to decide. If they are found guilty, it's for a court of law and a court of law only to make a decision as to what they're going to do with that person as far as the sentence is concerned. And we have seen... I think one very, very recent young lady who's got a horrendous drug addiction. She, I think she's spending three, four hundred pounds a day on crack cocaine and heroin. And she actually turned around to our investigators at court after she was convicted. And she said, you know what, it's the first time anyone's ever helped me because the court had just imposed a drug rehabilitation centre as part of the sentence. And she, she went off and for about nine months she was clean. She's back now and she's back stealing. She, I think she's actually banged up in prison again. But the court process, the system of justice, isn't all about just banging people up in prison. There are people who do need to go to prison because they are you know, going to continue offending. But you can get into an alcohol addiction program. You can get help through re- drug rehabilitation. You can get all sorts of help. You can get the probation service you know, in, involved in the whole process. It's, it's, it's a system that can work. David McKelvey, CEO of TMI and my local Bobby. I'd love to know what you made of that. You can drop us a line anytime on the feedback page of our website, monmanwith2ends.co.uk. You can also reach out there if you'd like to share your story on the show. Still to come, if you're insecure about penis size or jealous of your partner's former lovers, well, Alex Fox has advice for you. That's your sex questions in the foxhole. After this... Wham bam, thank you man fan, it's the Foxhole, with Alex Fox answering your sex questions, hello. Titillations, lubrications and salutations, Ollie. What have you been up to recently? What I've been getting up to is getting up high in the air, to uh, 3,000 feet in fact, uh, because I learned to fly, with a fabulous instructor named Jason, a fixed wing microlite plane. I don't know what fixed wing microlite means. Uh, it means it looks like a miniature plane as opposed to looking like uh, a sort of glider. Okay, but you are basically gliding. They just drop you, do they? Or are you steering a thing with an engine? Oh, no, it's got engines. Why? Got engines Terrifying. Why did you do that? Uh, it was a gift, but also I am an adventurous soul, Ollie. And I was apparently so fearless that Jason let me steer on the return journey back to base. I wouldn't think fearless was the quality that they were looking for for a safe pair of hands, but uh, obviously it is. <laughs> well, apparently microlites are some of the safest vehicles out there. Jason was telling me, he used the phrase that they are very forgiving as a plane, <laughs> which is a little bit concerning. That uh, Because they don't go massively high and they're quite lightweight and they have a fairly low minimum speed, if you're going to learn to fly something, as a total novice, this is a good place to start. Time for your questions of sex now, uh, and this one comes from an anonymous man who says, Alex, I have been with my wife for nearly eight years. In the early days, we had a discussion about previous partners and, he puts this in inverted commas, numbers. Uh, I'd been with four people before her, and for her, she said it was around 15, but she'd lost count. I handled it absolutely fine that she had more sexual experience than me. But for some reason, in the last few months, I've started suffering from, it's an interesting term of phrase this, really bad retroactive jealousy. 
I'm not acting on it or asking her questions, but、mm-hmm. I cannot stop thinking about her with other people. I'm getting really vivid images, and it makes me feel on edge, anxious, and sometimes I can even feel myself getting hot and sweating. I constantly feel like I want reassurance, but I'm not asking her for it, as I'm aware this is my problem, not hers. For the first time in seven years recently, I looked through all her Facebook photos. She has a lot from the past, but I wasn't even remotely curious about this for the first years of our relationship. I know from conversations in the past she's had sex in adventurous places, outdoors, public, etc. We've never done any of that, so that's now driving me crazy. Thinking it must be my fault. Maybe I'm too boring. To add to these new worries about how I compare to her past partners. I'm suddenly finding myself really insecure about my penis size. I'm on the small to lower average range brackets I've checked. I've always been fine with this, but now I'm not. I now can't stop thinking about how, if she's been with that many people, the likelihood is the majority of guys she's been with have been bigger than me. I'm in my own head when we have sex now and can't stop thinking about the fact she's had bigger and better.、Um, and then he puts as a postscript: I've started therapy a few months ago to work on my self-esteem. Some of this is working, and our sex life has improved. But despite logically being able to see our sex life is good, this retroactive jealousy and my penis-size insecurities are not going away. What an interesting male!、Mm. Uh, both in terms of、uh, the the communication and the gent himself.、Um, I had a chat to a friend of the show, an excellent sex therapist, Silva Neves,、uh, and also a new voice to me,、uh, a sex therapist called Lindsay Murray,、uh, who's based in Texas, to ascertain for a start what might have sparked this sudden hyperfixation and, and paranoia about the past. Seven or eight years into a, 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 what was sounds, sounds like it was a pretty secure, great relationship, and seven years after the conversation, it's not like he's just found out that she's had fifteen partners or just found out that he had a slightly small willy. He knew both those things for seven years, and now、yeah. it's bothering him. And now, suddenly, seemingly from the ether, this cloud of really acute anxiety and very physically experienced fretfulness has consumed this poor guy.、Um, Silver and I chatted about this, and. He said, "This seems like it's coming from nowhere, but insecurities about penis size,、uh, your sexual skill, the idea of being in competition with other men, are often buried deeply in a lot of a lot of blokes because society perpetually feeds unhelpful messages about masculinity from a really young age.、Um, often we don't challenge those messages, especially、uh, earlier in our lives when they can be very formative, when the discourse perhaps wasn't as active." As it is now, but those ideas, that indoctrination, still becomes part of our self, our hidden beliefs about ourselves,、mm. our subconscious insecurities, and then when something triggers them, all these unexamined and massively un- unhelpful fears and and concerns. Rush to the surface as they have with this guy. Caitlin Moran's got a whole thing about this, hasn't she? In her new book about、uh, the small willy thing, you know, the gesture with the finger, that being sort of acceptable in a way that saying, "Oh, she had a big flappy vag," just isn't. You know, it's still a thing that in a a, a mainstream acceptable sitcom, people will find funny to、uh, suggest that a man has a small penis, and therefore that is. Just by default, a bad thing. I haven't read that book yet, but I will agree certainly that we are not as 
evolved as a society in challenging the idea that it's not okay to mock a person for the the, the penis size, which has got like they're, they're in no way in control of that. Mm. Whereas we do say these days that um, it's unacceptable, for example, to um, to take the piss out of somebody because they've got small breasts or for some other physical aspect of, of themselves. I am pretty sure there must be a trigger here. I would be very, very surprised if it was as random as it seems that this guy has suddenly started thinking about this out of the blue. Um, We don't know what that trigger might be. And at the moment, he might not know either. It could be something about him. For example, um, if he's lost a job or been demoted, if his uh, physicality has changed, maybe he's uh, been ill lately or his, his shape has changed or something like that. Or it could just be his age. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to read out his email address because he's chosen to be anonymous, but I can tell you that it's got some digits in it that suggest he was born in the 1980s. So here's someone probably going into their 40s. And, you know, in a relationship for the eighth year, maybe that's a natural time that men and women will look back and say, is this everything I want? Yeah, he could be having a bit of an existential crisis. It might not be to do with him directly either. We don't know much about the situation with his wife. There might be something really positive that's happened for her. For example, if she's got a promotion at work or she's taken up a new hobby and is being much more sociable than before or there's something that makes him feel lesser in comparison to her, that feeling of being less than, of being smaller, uh, of not living up to the idea of the man that he thinks that she now deserves, Mm. that could be pushing these buttons. Lindsay pointed out that this, it's not just the, the, the topic of these worries, the idea of uh, your penis being too small or you not being as an adventurous enough lover that's very common, but the, this level of catastrophizing actually is, 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 is not uncommon. It can be a form of self-protection in that if you assume the absolute worst, oh my God, my wife's former lovers were definitely so much better than me. They've all got penises like so huge that they could win the the, the prize for massivist aubergine at the, uh, the county fair <laughs> year on year. She definitely is dissatisfied with the sex we're having. Then you sort of insulate yourself ag- against actually hearing that in real life. Mm. This man does not know whether any of these things are actually true, but he's sort of preparing himself to hear them. There's a much more fundamental answer, it seems to me, to all of this, which is, she's still with you. Absolutely. She's had 15 partners, okay. She chose you. Silver and I discuss this. Even if you do assume the worst, and even if that worst case scenario absolutely is true, that every previous partner had a massive, great swing and schlong and mm. they were all incredible in bed. And, Maybe and, she wanted a smaller one. Yeah, she chose you, my friend. You are the winner. There are reasons for that. She she loves your penis, I'm sure. She loves sufficiently loves enough of what you do with it. And the rest of you, the on balance you're the one that's come out on top, both literally and figuratively. There's also just much more to relationships than wangs and shags, Mm, aren't there? mm. Um, It's about intimacy. It's about laughing together. It's about supporting each other, feeling that you have enough in common to want to build a life together. 
Silver also made the really excellent point that we don't always want the same things that we did in the past. Mm. His wife may have been having some crazy love life where they were making love on the top of moving trains and swinging from helicopters or, you know... Microlights. <laughs> Microlights, yeah, yeah. That might not be what she actually desires now, mm. a decade down the line, almost. Um, when I was a younger person, I once tossed somebody off on a train station platform in the middle of the day. That seemed extremely <laughs> thrilling back then. I would not desire to do that at all. Now, I'm not saying that I have a boring love life, far from it. My point Just is... Got the, the 259 to catch. <laughs> my point is the things that revved my engines back then would absolutely stall my libido now. But also, I mean, he says here, I constantly feel like I want reassurance, but I'm not asking for it as I'm aware this is my problem, not hers. Well, maybe in a sense it is her problem if you're not getting enough reassurance that you are the one she chose. And that's the thing about relationships, isn't it? Very often people stop telling each other that. Is it as simple as that? I think they do need to talk about it in constructive ways. I'd be amazed if his wife hadn't noticed that something was up. Mm. Uh, I'm sure she's aware, especially as he's having these really physical uh, sweating and uh, like visualised reactions to things. <laughs> it won't have passed her by that he is a gibbering wreck at points at the moment. I think it would be really useful if he could express to his wife generally that he is experiencing some anxiety and perhaps would enjoy some fun, uplifting or intimate bonding time with her. But I would caution him that if he spills everything about what's on his mind right now to his wife and says, I'm worried that you are fucking all these incredible men and that you think I'm shit in bed now and, and I'm terrible and you want other men. There's an element of shame and blame there. He is retroactively shaming his wife's choices or his wife's perceived choices that he was fine with seven or eight years ago, but now he has a problem with how she was living her life back in history before they met. Mm. So I would definitely consider those aspects before starting a conversation. So it doesn't sound like he is um, somehow angry and making it her problem that he feels this way. I mean, one positive thing to be said about this email, though, is that it seems very self-aware, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. He, he has reached out for help as well, you know, and he seems to have quite an objective um, attitude about things, you know, the factual size of his penis, and yet can't ignore the fact it's happening. Yeah, Lindsay and I agreed that he does maybe need to manage his expectations of how quickly therapy can help to heal a wound that he may have actually been carrying for decades. Yes, this anxiety is a relatively new thing in the way that he's experiencing it, but the messages, the societal messages underpinning it may have been things that he's been hearing for years and carrying subconsciously for years, and perhaps the things that have triggered it might be a much bigger thing than how big or not your penis is. And in order to hash that out in therapy, it might take months. So just keep at it. You're doing all the right things. I, I do think there's so much hope here and he's on the right track. But just to give some facts in case he does need to hear this. 
Regarding penis size, the statistics show that most people who believe their penis is too small actually think that most men's penises are bigger than they are. Mm. He does say that he's checked. There's all sorts of misinformation and myth and out there. But even if you do statistically absolutely have like half an inch less than the median, truly it's not about what you're packing, it's about what you're doing with it. Bigger is not always better. In fact, there are partners who actively seek um, a, a penis on the smaller side because it's easier to do things like comfortably give oral or uh, have penetrative sex that perhaps isn't painful or doesn't make you feel stretched or, you know, mm. it, it, it can just be less intimidating uh, and more enjoyable. Plain fact as well, most people with vaginas don't orgasm through penetration, mm. as we've covered umpteen times on the show. For a lot of them, for the majority, it's about clitoral stimulation and you do not need a penis to provide that. Yeah. So getting too hung up on how hung you are is not going to get you anywhere. It's not going to serve you. And you may have some uh, inaccuracies in what you believe your size to be anyway. Indeed. Uh, if you have a question of sex for Alex answer in a future edition... If you want to get to the root of something that's troubling you about rooting, head to modernmanwith2ends.co.uk and hit feedback. And with that, we have very nearly reached the end of this edition of The Modern Man, but there is just time to appoint a new ambassador. It is Andy Gilson, who says, Ollie, I am a long-time listener to your various podcasts and still miss AMT. Me too, Andy. I always find something to enjoy in every episode of The Modern Man and have finally got around to buying you a beer each. Cheers, Andy. Uh, would you consider making me ambassador for Midhurst West Sussex? Some time ago you appointed my daughter Lauren ambassador for Chicago. So would we be the first father-slash-daughter ambassadors? Uh, I'd have to consult my spreadsheet, Andy, but you'd certainly be the first father-slash-daughter ambassadors across continents anyway, and that novelty is enough to force my hand. I now pronounce you ambassador for Midhurst. Congratulations. Uh, if you'd like to be an ambassador, buy us a beer, drop us a line. Links on the website. Until next time, our theme music is by Django Django. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer, Matt Hill. And we'll see you with something new on October the 10th. So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Tuesday, we head to the battlefields of medieval Spain to witness the very first ambulance. On Wednesday, it's the anniversary of the day Coca-Cola's creator hit on his winning formula. He dropped the wine, but kept the cocaine. On Thursday, the thief who stuffed the crown jewels down his trousers. And on Friday, when free-spirited Danish parenting put 90s New York in a tears. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts.